Hello, and there is a part six. I'm gonna try to make this a little clearer than last week, if possible. Words work in a certain way. I only have a undergraduate degree in linguistics, so I really can't act like I'm a linguist, but I can help a little bit here. For example, words like forever. Jonah was forever in the belly of the whale. Do you understand why they could use the word forever, even though it was only the three days, three nights in the story? Yeah, because it feels like forever. We even still speak like this. We'll say it took forever for me to get through the line at Walmart. It took forever to get here today because of the traffic. We know exactly what that means. They use language in scripture with colloquialisms, uh, synecdoche, hyperbole. They use language like human beings use language. And we, we're not to read it as if it was a legal document. It's a narrative. It's not, a, not something your lawyer would hand you, that every word has to have a precise definition bound by legal terms. Think about words that affect what they are modifying. You know, forever modifies a time. Think about the word tall. It has a definite meaning, but it doesn't have an objective, measurable reality. I'm gonna say that again, because it's very much like the use of the word eternity in scripture. Tall has a definite meaning, but it does not have a definite measurable reality. You can have a tall drink, you can have a tall boy, in which case they're not the same size. But everybody understands what you've done with the word tall. You can have a tall building or a tall order. And we all know exactly what you mean when you put tall in front of it, but there's no measurable reality to say, oh, tall building, tall man, they must be the same size. And yet, we try to force the word A-I-O-N, Ion, Aeon, in Greek, or Olam in, in Hebrew, to mean exactly the same thing we want it to mean or think it means in every case that it's used, and it just won't work. That's a real tall order. Or as they would say in Texas, they'll even use a, that's a, you know, that guy over there's a real tall drink of water. And I still don't understand that one, by the way. And my wife's uh, father is Texan, great guy. I don't know what tall drink of water is. We know what tall means, but it changes its quality and how, how tall it is according to how, what, what do they put it next to? If you stroll through an exhaustive concordance, now, those of you that aren't church people, there are exhaustive concordances out there. The most famous is Strong's that list every time a word is found in scripture. And I mean every time. Strong's even list every time the word the or an or a is mentioned. Seriously, it's quite an amazing thing. Um, and, and by the way, I think everybody ought to own one just because it's massive and it's kind of fun to tool around in it. But if you stroll through one of those, you'll, you'll find dozens of examples of the words everlasting and eternal or their synonyms being used to modify things that we know had an end. Um, Habakkuk 3.6. I love Habakkuk. Looks like Habakkuk, but it's pronounced Habakkuk. 
3.6 says, He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. Well, that's the NIV. Okay? We all understand that. In the King James Version, the words are translated everlasting mountains, not ancient. Why? Because A-I-O-N or O-L-A-N in Hebrew is there. Everlasting mountains, perpetual hills, and his ways are everlasting. In other words, in the NIV, uh, which I love, by the way, it says ancient mountains, eternal God. And the, the original language, the modifier for mountains and God is the same modifier. So does God only last as long as mountains? Of course not. Tall boy, tall building, tall order, tall drink of water. You see, there are so many others. Um, and I, I, I don't want to go like we did last week and go too long. But think about Matthew 25, verse 46. We brought that up last time. You'll find another gem is waiting for us here. But it isn't in the gem eternal, so aren't you glad? Instead, it's K-O-L-A-S-I-S, Colossus. It's punishment. But here's the thing, that eternal punishment, every time we find that word, Colossus, every time it's remedial punishment not capital punishment not a punishment that it is designed for vengeance but rather for remediation to pull them back punish them so that they want to come back when i say always used um, i'm meaning every reference book i can find if you have other information I'm always willing to look at it. It's used, for example, for the pruning of trees. You don't kill the tree. You, you, you cut it back and therefore make it more healthy in the long run. Um, when we make, take this passage, Matthew 25 and verse 46, and try to make it into a, a William Blake painting, I fear we have done damage and injustice to the passage. Hell is horrible. Whatever it is, nobody should wanna go there. We should fight hard to keep people out. Still, we have to figure out if there's enough information in scripture to know what hell is. And I suggest that it isn't the picture I was told in thunderous sermons by red-faced ministers flinging their arms about and pounding pulpits. You see, Colossus is for the good of the sufferer. It's not a sadistic, over-the-top symphony of brutality. It, if as it seems, Colossus is never used for the death penalty, then it brings to mind 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 15. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 15, remember it? We've done this before. I'm, as I've said, because people say, I say the scriptures too fast, we're going to go slowly and go turn. 3.15, if it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but as only as one escaping through the flames. Check that out. What's it all about? Oh, it's about division and causing harm in the church. And so the fire is there not to destroy the individual, 
but no, it's to, there will be loss. But the individual may escape through the flames. Hmm. You might want to look at a book called um, uh, The Inescapable Love of God by a man called Thomas Talbot. He's a professor of philosophy at Will Willamette University in Oregon. The Inescapable Love of God. And he does an, an incredible in-depth study of that. So we're, we're not going to. William Barclay, whenever he was speaking of the definition, we generally give to the word, again, aeon or aeonosis, to say eternal or eternally. Here is his quote, William Barclay, one of the great leaders of, um, I, I would say of evangelical, maybe a little fundamental, although he was well earlier than the fundamentalist movement. Quote, the simplest way to put it is that ionosis cannot be used properly of anyone but God. Eternal punishment is then literally that kind of remedial punishment which it befits God to give and which only God can give, end of quote. I think we run off the road and into the weeds whenever we forget to notice what is eternal, the punishment or the punished. The fire can be eternal. The lake of fire can send its smoke up forever. But that doesn't mean that the person in there stays in it for eternity. They either burn up which is the annihilationist view, or they are saved as through the fire. And that would hearken back to Jesus saying that some are punished with many stripes, some with few stripes. I don't really know what to say other than that. I don't, if you ask me then, well, what does that mean? Are you suggesting purgatory? What does that mean? Or I can't mean anything there because I don't have any more information. The Bible just isn't interested in giving us a roadmap of the afterlife. I mean, Dante did and Milton did, but God didn't. And we got way too much of our theology through Dante, through Milton, through Aristotle, and then through Augustine, who, who most people call Augustine, who took Aristotle's work and turned it into Christian dogma step by step. And it's very easily to, easy to trace how he did that. I'll, I'll quickly address two points as, um, as fast as I can, all right? One ask if there's any uh, example of an adjective form of aeon that means anything other than eternal. The answer is yes, a whole lot, a whole lot. Eternally, they're asking, is the word eternally found and in any place where it is not eternal. Yeah, yeah, uh, pretty, pretty early on, Genesis 6, 4. The mighty men of God, which were of old, his covenant with Noah is described as being for perpetual, eternal generations in Genesis 9, verse 12. Um, in the same chapter, verse 16, it is a token of an everlasting covenant between God and all flesh on the earth. Of course, the rainbow, flesh and earth will end. So is it an everlasting sign? Yes, because everlasting doesn't mean it's gonna last forever. It lasts as long as we need it. 
And when all flesh is gone and the earth is gone, we don't need it anymore. It has become superfluous to requirements, as we might say. Um, in Genesis 13 and verse five, uh, sorry, 13 and verse 15, God gave the land to Abraham forever. It was an etern eternally given. And yet, most Jews don't live there now. Jews didn't live there. They were in and out, but mainly out for 2,000 years. Um, and that's a bit of a hyperbole, but I hope you understand the point. As, as one teacher told me years ago, there are more Jews in the state of New York than there are in Israel. That is very correct. Uh, Israel's a very small place. You know, I wouldn't want to walk around it, but it's a very small place. Um, think about in Jeremiah 18 and verse 15, he uses several varieties, um, adjectival forms or adverbial forms of the word for eternity and applies them to things that are temporary, such as pathways, scorn. We can go on. In fact, I have a list here. Um, that would take us several more months to get through and I'm just not gonna do it. Uh, we've done enough. Just be aware. Um, it is all right to be an agnostic on some things, to say, I don't know enough to say, I'm gonna die on this hill. If you've suspected this about me, I wanna go ahead and let you know you were correct. There are very few hills I would die on. You know, I think of uh, on, on this planet, I would think of the love for my wife, the love for my children and grandchildren, the love for my church, the love for people that I've met. I'll, I'll die on that hill uh, to protect my neighbors and, and, and provide for them and such, yeah. Uh, this is another reason why, reason number 5,000, I'm not a prepper. Because there's no way I'm going to be sitting in the dark eating food when my neighbors are starving to death and their babies are crying. Now, what kind of person would you have to be? So no, I'll, I'll die on those hills. I'll, I'll care for my neighbors and care for my loved ones. When it comes to religion, I believe that there is a God. I am not him. That's number two. Number three, Jesus Christ is the son of God, equal to God in all things. I'll, I'll die on those hills. I think I actually am in a process of that because I've lived on those hills. And if you take a good look at this face, you know that this face is not young. And so I'm dying on those hills. That's where I plan to die. But I cannot look at you and say, ah, here's exactly what happens. First, second, third, fourth, about heaven and hell. I just trust Jesus. And I know I've said that before. But think about that. Think about how beautiful it is just to trust Jesus. Trust the Father. And to know that they love us. Think of Hagar, a woman whose name means stranger and foreigner. So we don't even know her real name. She was just a stranger, just a piece of property in Egypt that the king gives to Abraham because <coughs> you can give away property. Abraham takes her for she is merely property. And then Sarah suggests that he have sex with her and, and has a baby with her because it's not working with Sarah. So he does. We have no idea whether Hagar was interested in this or not. 
And then when the baby's there, Sarah's jealous, drives them out, and you know, demands Abraham drives them out in an act of supreme cowardice, he does so. And as Hagar is waiting for the child to die and separating herself from them so could no longer hear the cries, God appears, promises her many things. When she comes back, she says, I have seen the God who sees me. God sees you. In the book of Job, chapter 38, the last couple of verses say that when the baby ravens, baby birds cry out for hunger, that they're talking to God and that God hears them. In chapter 39, God counts the months that a deer is pregnant and excited about the birth. And then Jesus in the New Testament will say, even a sparrow does not fall to the earth without the Father. And versions, according to which versions you have, it'll say without the Father's will or without the Father's knowledge. Those extra words aren't in any original manuscript, original, any of the early manuscripts. Instead, it just says, without the Father. God won't even let a bird die alone. Trust him. Okay, after long last, a new subject next week. God bless you. Be at peace.